Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Sunday, October 7th. I'm John Dickerson, and this is Face the Nation. The fight over Judge Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation to the Supreme Court is finally over. But the angry atmosphere, both outside and inside the Capitol. That's what I am left with, Mr. President. Anger, fury, disgust. It has been cruel, reckless, and indecent, both to Dr. Ford and Judge Kavanaugh. Has gone from bad to worse. And now, with only a month left before the midterm elections, both parties are energized, making the chances for more division across America even more likely. What he and his wonderful family endured at the hands of Democrats is unthinkable. It's unthinkable. In their quest for power, the radical Democrats have turned into an angry mob. Maine Republican Susan Collins tells us why she voted for Kavanaugh despite intense pressure to oppose him. And in a preview of tonight's 60 Minutes, we'll hear from North Dakota Democrat Heidi Heitkamp, whose no vote may mean losing her Senate seat. We'll ask Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell why he thinks Republicans will benefit from the Kavanaugh fight. And we'll have plenty of political analysis on all the news just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. The battle that's divided the country and in particular Washington, D.C. is over. In one of the closest Supreme Court votes in history, Judge Brett Kavanaugh has been confirmed and is now Justice Brett Kavanaugh. He was privately sworn in late yesterday by Chief Justice John Roberts and is now the 114th Supreme Court Justice, giving the conservatives on the court a 5-4 majority. We begin with Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins, who made a dramatic 45-minute speech to the Senate on Friday, outlining her decision to vote for Judge Kavanaugh. Welcome, Senator. Thank you, John. You were one of the senators who backed the FBI inquiry. You said it was a very thorough investigation, but Dr. Ford's um, lawyers said that none of the people they put forward uh, were interviewed. They said there is corroborating evidence and nobody wanted to see it. It was a thorough investigation. Keep in mind that there have already been six FBI background investigations that have been done on Judge Kavanaugh. And I, along with Jeff Flake and Lisa Murkowski, insisted that there be a supplemental FBI investigation to look at these allegations because they were so serious. There was a lot of there were a lot of rumors that only the four people uh, that Dr. Ford mentioned in her testimony would be interviewed. That was not the case. I read 12 different interviews uh, on Thursday. You have said you found her testimony um, uh, believable in the sense that something happened to her. So, so is it your view something happened to her, to her, it's just it wasn't Judge Kavanaugh? And if that's your view, do you have any corroborating evidence for that? 
I am convinced that Dr. Ford believes what she told us and that she was a victim, a survivor of sexual assault, and that that has been a trauma that has stayed with her for her entire life. But we have a presumption of innocence in this country. And when I looked at the lack of any corroborating evidence, including no evidence from her very best friend who was present at the party, I could not conclude that Brett Kavanaugh was her assailant. The counterargument is corroboration doesn't mean eyewitness. In other words, the fact that she told her husband and her therapist long ago is a kind of corroboration and that that should have been part of the inquiry. And since it wasn't, that this is really not looking into the, the nature of sexual assault. Well, she had the opportunity to have further interviews with the staff investigators, bipartisan staff investigators of the Judiciary Committee. And I believe that uh, this system has not served either Brett Kavanaugh or Christine Ford well. You mentioned you read 12 interviews. That it reported it had been nine, but it was 12? There were 12 interviews. There were, it was one person who had two different um, interviews. And that, well, I can't go into what was in those because they're classified. But suffice it to say that the key witnesses whom Dr. Ford named to a person said that they had no recollection of anything like that, nor did anybody come forward afterwards to say, I was there, or did anyone call and say, I was the one who picked you up and drove you home. Democrats keyed on what they saw as a discrepancy between uh, Judge Kavanaugh's descriptions of his drinking and his time in high school and college, and then some of these other reports. Did you find any distance between those two? I think that Judge Kavanaugh drank too much in high school. Uh, but the background investigations that the FBI conducts always have a question of, did you drink, did the nominee drink to excess or use drugs? That is a standard mm -hmm. question that's asked each and every time. And 150 people were interviewed for those background investigations, and none of them brought forth the evidence to support that. The Democrats seized on was not that uh, somehow his drinking impaired his judicial ability, but that he wasn't straight up about it and that you want judges to tell the truth. But you felt in his testimony he was truthful on those questions? I did. The question uh, that he was asked was, I mean, it's clear he drank in high school, but the question that was the important question was, was he a blackout drunk? And he said that that was not the case. And the testimony that we had in, in the interviews did not support that contention. Let me ask you about the question of temperament, which your Republican colleague, Lisa Murkowski, really defined her no vote around that idea. What she keyed in on was the partisan nature, that when, when accused, he jumped to the most dire partisan framing of what was happening to him. I thought Judge Kavanaugh's denial at the second hearing was very powerful, his anger and his anguish. I think it's are understandable given that he's been accused of being involved in gang rapes of women. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is a 
devastating allegation. So I think it was understandable that he was reacting as a human being, as a father, as a, uh, a father of two young girls. But I will say that I thought his questioning, with the questioning with the senators, that he went over the line. And I was glad that he apologized to Amy Klobuchar in particular. But what Senator Murkowski seemed to zero in on here is that his he jumped right to the conclusion that all questions that were asked were the result of a partisan Democratic witch hunt. Going right to the partisan weaponry is is antithetical to the job he's being asked to be elevated to. Well, let's look at his history. When he was first nominated, it was in 2004. His nomination was delayed for two years by the Democrats. He had very hostile hearings in 2004 and 2006 when he was finally confirmed for the court. And yet that did not affect his performance as a judge for 12 years on the D.C. Circuit. In addition, 500 people were interviewed about his temperament and did he treat all litigants with respect. And to a person, they said he did. Senator Murkowski made a second, more subtle point, which was that the behavior in the actual testimony on that Thursday um, will change the way in which people have confidence about the court. In other words, by elevating him into the court, it, it, it brings partisanship into the court, and that for her, that was going to make the, the court, which has been less partisan than the presidency or Congress, more so just by the nature of the way he testified. Well, I'm very concerned about the court in general already because we have too many 5-4 decisions. I don't like the idea that there's a liberal block, a conservative block. I want judges that apply the law and the Constitution to the facts of the case. So I have confidence, having reviewed in depth uh, Judge Kavanaugh's 12 years on the circuit court, uh, that he will do that. Victims of sexual assault have said they would never mistake their attacker. And so by suggesting Dr. Ford is mistaken with her attacker, that you and others are making a broader, um, that you're essentially denying their experience more than just the specific facts of this case. You know, when I hear that, it causes me huge pain because I have met with so many survivors of sexual attacks, including close friends. And these women have the right to be heard. They have the right to be treated with respect. And I think one of the tragedies of the, what we've just gone through is Christine Blasey Ford wanted to have her allegations treated confidentially. She did not seek the limelight. She did not want to testify in public. And because someone leaked the letter that she sent, her whole life has been turned upside down. I think that was wrong and despicable. The one silver lining that I hope will come from this is that more women will press charges now when they are assaulted. What women have said, the reason they don't come and report is because people won't believe them. They'll poke holes in their story. They'll say that the fact they didn't remember certain details, which we know from brain science, uh, it, it, that sometimes happens in these assaults. You remember some very deeply, but not broadly. All of that was used against Dr. Ford. And so after this a process in which these holes in her story were used, even by the president, that that will make it actually harder to come forward because people will say, well, nobody's going to believe me the way they didn't believe her. 
Well, I certainly don't believe that's the case because I think that this has been an awakening for this country. I don't think most of us had any idea how pervasive the problem of sexual assault is. Sexual harassment, yes, we knew that. But sexual assault, and that's why the Me Too movement has been important. That's why it's been important that so many of these women, for the first time ever, have come forward. And it is important that we treat people fairly, and that's what we need to do. Do you think Democrats who were all uh, Democrats were working in good faith to try to find out what really happened? Well, I can't help but think that there were some who wanted to use Dr. Ford. And that really saddens me, because otherwise they would have gone with her express wishes, which is to have been interviewed in private, to have kept her allegations confidential. They still could have been thoroughly explored. And I think that's really shameful. I do not think the system treated her well. All right, Senator Collins, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, John. One Democratic senator facing a tough reelection in a state President Trump won by 35 percentage points is North Dakota Democratic Senator Heidi Heitkamp, who voted against Kavanaugh. She spoke with CBS News's Scott Pelley about her decision in an interview that will air tonight on 60 Minutes. The senators who have decided to vote in favor of Judge Kavanaugh's nomination seem to believe that he was wrongfully accused. Everybody's going to make their own judgment. And, and I have to tell you, my judgment on her experience is based on a lot of experience working with domestic assault victims, domestic violence victims, and, and the experiences that have been shared um, over and over in my time as attorney general and now coming to the Senate as people have described their experience. And for me, it does not appear that he's, he's uh, somebody who should be uh, given a lifetime appointment to the most important court in the world. And when your Republican colleagues say, yes, we believe Dr. Ford was sincere too, but without corroborating information, you just can't ruin this man's career. You say what? Well, what I, what I would say is, even if you don't believe or believe um, uh, Dr. Ford, the other issue is one of temperament. The other one is an issue of impartiality and blind justice. And um, I think that that adds to the case being made that um, a no vote is the appropriate vote. At this moment, about four weeks before the election, you are running behind your Republican challenger in North Dakota. Mm -hmm. A political consultant would have told you that voting for Kavanaugh would have been better for you. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think that the, the politically expedient vote here was a, a yes vote. Why um, not then? Because this isn't about politics. There will be a lot more of Scott's interview with Senator Heidkamp, as well as his conversation with Senator Susan Collins on tonight's 60 Minutes after football. And we'll be back in one minute with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Stay with us. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time, and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. 
Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you, that's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love or visit www.pacificlife.com. We go now to Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell, who joins us from Louisville, Kentucky this morning. Mr. Leader, I'm going to start with something you said to the Washington Post. You said, I want to thank the mob because they've done the one thing we were having trouble doing, which is energizing our base. Who is the mob? Well, the people that were attacking our members at their homes and in the halls. Um, it was uh, really quite a display of aggressiveness, uh, far beyond uh, what I would consider peaceful protesting. Uh, they were trying to intimidate members of the Senate, um, not only in our home uh, states, but also up here, we're actually in, in the Capitol and at our homes here in Washington. And I'm really proud of my members for not knuckling under to that, those kind of mob-like tactics. Is it possible, in your mind, for a senator to have voted against Judge Kavanaugh in good conscience? Oh, I'm sure. I'm not going to question the motivation of the senator's votes. It was a close vote, an important vote. I think we were able to establish that the presumption of innocence is still important in this country and that the Senate is not going to be intimidated by these kinds of tactics. Senator, the, the, um, uh, President Trump said that Lisa, Senator Lisa Murkowski is never going to recover. Should she be punished for voting against Judge Kavanaugh? Look, I, I'd rather talk about the success that we had. Um, Senator Murkowski is a Republican member of our conference in good standing. Uh, we're happy that we won. I'm sorry that we lost her. Uh, but we got uh, the votes of all the other members of my conference and those who wanted the, uh, the additional FBI investigation for a week took a look at the report, found no corroborating evidence, and were comforted uh, to vote for Judge Kavanaugh. Senator Collins' uh, speech was one of the most consequential and outstanding speeches I've ever heard in the Senate in support of Judge Kavanaugh. Let me ask you this. Uh, Joe Manchin voted for Judge Kavanaugh. Will you uh, recommend to the president that he not campaign against Joe Manchin, who's up in 2018? Well, Joe Manchin's still a Democrat, and we're trying to hold the majority. We appreciate his vote for Judge Kavanaugh. I think it was the right thing to do. Uh, but we're trying to win seats. And ironically, the behavior of first uh, Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee and then the overreach of the uh, protesters at the Capitol have actually energized the Republican base, uh, particularly in the red states where we're trying to pick up seats out across America. So I want to thank, I want to thank the uh, other side for the tactics that have allowed us to kind of energize and get involved our own uh, voters. Let me ask you about that. You, you said after the tax cut bill passed, if we cannot sell tax cuts, we should be in another line of work. Why, after reducing regulations, passing a tax cut bill, was the Republican base not energized and it required this? Well, I mean, we are still talking about those issues, and I do think it's important, but everybody knows how energized the Democrats' side is for all, a whole variety of different reasons. And so our energy and enthusiasm was lagging behind uh, theirs until this. 
And I think this gave us the motivation and the opportunity to have the kind of turnout in this off-year election that would help us hold the Senate. Let me ask you about a piece of legislation. As everybody's been more aware now of sexual assault, senators have talked about bringing up again the bill that would change the rules for investigating sexual assault in the Senate. It's passed with bipartisan support, but it's stalled. Is there going to be action on that now? Yeah, I sure hope so. I mean, that we've had difficulty negotiating our, our differences between the House and Senate, but I, that's something I know will get done before the end of the year. But and isn't it way, up to you, Mr. Of, Leader? No, no, it's not up to me. We're negotiating a, a solution between the House and Senate, and I expect that we will get a result here before the end of this uh, Congress. It's also important to underscore that in spite of our big fight over this nomination and over taxes last year, there's been an awful lot of bipartisan cooperation. We passed two overwhelmingly, by, by overwhelming margins, two bills just last week in the middle of the Kavanaugh uh, dispute on opioids uh, and a five-year extension of the FAA. And we've also done appropriations better on a bipartisan basis than any time but since the 1990s. So the notion yeah. that the Senate is somehow broken over this is simply inaccurate. But, Mr. Leader, those things have happened, but this is of a different order. And Democrats are pointing not only to the way this was handled, but in the history of partisanship on the Supreme Court, your decision to block Merrick Garland uh, is something they see as, as having kicked off a new stage in the partisanship associated with Supreme Court nominees. Yeah, they don't know much history. You have to go back to 1880 to find the last time a Senate controlled by a different party from the president confirmed a Supreme Court justice to a vacancy created in the middle of a presidential election. They also sure. conveniently forgotten that Joe Biden said in 1992 when he was chairman of the Judiciary Committee, the Democrats control the Senate, Republican in the White House, if a vacancy occurred, they wouldn't fill it. They also conveniently forgot that Chuck Schumer and Harry Reid, 18 months before the end of Bush 43, said if a Supreme Court vacancy occurred, they wouldn't fill it. But Talk Mr. about Leader, hypocrisy. Right. But, Mr. Leader, I don't think that's right. In 1956, Eisenhower nominated Brennan. The, the 84th Congress was a Democrat-controlled. And also on the Biden rule, Joe Biden was talking in the abstract. There was no nominee. No nominee was blocked. And he said to not have the nomination come up before the election, but that it could come up after the election. And so what Democrats say when they hear you doing this is they say he's creating new rules to essentially do what he wants to do. And as you've written in your book, The Long Game, when you do that, it actually hurts democracy. Yeah, well, that's not exactly, that's not at all what happened, John. You're, you're completely misconstruing what happened. What I gave you is the history of this. I know the history of this. I've spent a lot of time on this throughout my career. What I did was entirely consistent with what the history of the Senate's been in that situation going back to 1880. Well, I, I think the 1956 example and also in 1968, later in the election cycle, when a Democratic president put somebody forward, the Republican leader worked with him to get that person a hearing and get him towards the Supreme Court, which is not something that you did. A vote at the time. Then there was a Democrat. Then there was a Democrat in the White House and a Democratic Senate. But the Republican leader at the time tried to you help the Democratic me, president. John. John, you are not listening to me. The history is, is exactly as I told you. Well, we have, we have a disagreement about the history, but I greatly yeah, we appreciate, we greatly we appreciate you being with us uh, here today. Mr. Leader, thanks so much. Okay, thank you. An editorial note, we reached out to some 20 Democratic senators to come on the broadcast today, but obviously were unsuccessful. We'll be right back with more Face the Nation in a moment. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. 
They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. And a programming note. CBS Evening News anchor Jeff Glor will be taking the evening news on the road Tuesday to Arizona, where he'll be interviewing the two candidates locked in a tight race to replace retiring Republican Jeff Flake. According to our CBS News battleground tracker, Democratic Congresswoman Kirsten Sinema has a slight edge over Republican Congresswoman Martha McSally, and that is within the margin of error. That's Tuesday on the CBS Evening News. We'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation, including a report on Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's trip to Pyongyang to meet with Kim Jong-un, our political panel, and a conversation with Greg Miller of The Washington Post. He's the author of a new book, The Apprentice. You can guess who that might be referring to. Stay with us. Memories make us laugh and cry and sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices but in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans our memories are fading and so is the old media that holds them hi i'm adam baselogger and i'm nick mako and we're the founders of legacy box legacy box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories here's how it works fill legacy box with your outdated media we professionally digitize and send them back on dvds thumb drive or the cloud look Those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com slash save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com slash save for 40% off. LegacyBox.com slash save. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We'd like to welcome our panel now for some political analysis. Sungmin Kim covers Congress and the White House for the Washington Post. John Harris is editor-in-chief of Politico. And Nancy Cordes is the chief congressional correspondent here at CBS. Sungmin, I want to start with you. You heard Leader McConnell feeling pretty good about the way this week um, ended up. Was it in doubt or uh, was Susan Collins the key vote 
kind of always search, always going to yes, and there was nothing to stop her to going to no. Well, I think one of the interesting things that um, Mitch McConnell pointed out in his interview with me and other um, other news outlets was that he didn't know where the votes were until he walked into that chamber and heard every one of his members vote aye, or in Lisa Murkowski's case, vote no. Um, I think that looking, I think looking back at Susan Collins's speech with her forceful line-by-line -line defense of Judge Kavanaugh, it's it seemed like she wanted to be a yes all along, and she just wanted to make sure all her, you know, all the T's were crossed and all the I's were dotted before she was able to get that. But that was one of the most forceful defenses of Kavanaugh that I've seen throughout this confirmation process at a time when we've seen uh, senators like Lindsey Graham and John Cornyn and Orrin Hatch just go to the mat for Judge Kavanaugh. So to see her defense and to um, have known that she, you know, was able to get to that place while saying she was undecided all along was just really interesting. And, and, and I think we saw for a while that she wanted to be a yes. I think these are Republican senators. I mean, they want to vote in favor of Supreme Court justice. Susan Collins has never voted against a Supreme Court nominee, whether from a Democratic president or a Republican president. But it was just really interesting to see how that all played out in the end. John, the leader McConnell in another interview, maybe I can't remember which of the ones he's done, <laughs> but he said it, it was after Dr. Ford testified, it was kind of halftime. They thought they might be losing the nomination. And then at the end, you have him saying, boy, this really fired up the base. Not, so not only did they get an associate justice, they now are fired up. What happened between the two? I think that they, uh, uh, Judge Kavanaugh, which, who surprised everybody with that fiery blast that he delivered uh, with his testimony, did uh, follow the essential rule of modern politics in the polarized era, which is get people to say, which side are you on? And, uh, I mean, it's an interesting thought experiment. If he had come out, uh, as many people expect him to do, with a more temperate statement, like, look, I'm really sorry, something bad must have happened, but you have to trust me, it wasn't this. Uh, I regret that I used to drink too much as a young person. I'm a different, more uh, mature person now. Many of us thought he would say something like that. Would that have worked? I have to say, in my experience, which now goes back a generation to these really polarizing battles, uh, that kind of middle-of-the-road approach isn't really the most successful. He probably did the politically shrewd thing, uh, which is say, look, nope, I'm drawing a sharp line, and everybody can decide which side they're on. Nancy, you were all over this. The Democrats, what did they, how do they feel they did at the end of this, um, both politically and then specifically with respect to Kavanaugh, but then the larger set of issues here that Democrats care a great deal about, which is protecting witnesses, listening to the accused, and so forth? Well, I think they're obviously incredibly dejected, but I think that they felt that they had no choice but to go to the mat for a couple of different reasons. First of all, you know, their base was so frustrated after the Merrick Garland experience. And so had they not fought to the very end over this, um, you know, that would have left the base even more disaffected in advance of the midterm elections. They wanted to, them to show, okay, the Republicans really fought and won on Merrick Garland. Show us what you've got this time around. So that, you know, that, that left them with no choice but to, you know, stall and delay and do anything that they could. One strategic error the Democrats have been pointing on to go to, back to John's point about going, you know, hard and strong and whose side are you on? Michael Avenatti, mm -hmm. Stormy Daniels' lawyer, who came in with a, with a late-breaking addition to this story. A lot of Democrats are saying, and are you hearing this, that Avenatti took what was a sympathetic case with Ford and turned it into a circus, losing them the high ground. Is, yes. Are you hearing that? And it is very interesting. It was very interesting to watch all the way along how Democrats dealt with these Avenatti allegations, because at first they really kept them at arm's length. They, they didn't know what to make of them. Then the day that Julie Swetnick actually released her sworn statement, 
I mean, both sides were shocked. You even had Republicans who thought it was all over. I had one Republican aide say to me, uh, America should be devastated. Michael Avenatti brought the heat. And then as some stories started to, some questions started to come up about her story, Democrats then again retreated, most of them. I mean, you did still have, you know, the challenge for Democrats was, their line was, you should believe women. So they didn't really have the option to pick and choose and say, so we believe these two women, but we don't necessarily believe this woman. So they were sort of stuck with an all or nothing situation. Sungman, what did you make? I asked Leader McConnell if uh, Lisa Murkowski should pay a price for the vote, and his response was, I'd like to talk about the success we had. <laughs> you tried your darndest. I tried hit twice in my interview with him yesterday to talk about Murkowski and her vote, and particularly her reasoning why she voted no, which was the temperament issue which I found fascinating. But um, you have to look at Lisa Murkowski and her political history in Alaska. I mean, I know the president told uh, my colleague Phil Rucker in a phone interview yesterday that um, she's toast. I mean, it's not going to play well for her politically. Remember, this is a woman who lost her own primary in 2010. <laughs> leadership, party leadership shunned her back in Washington. She had to resign from her top leadership post. And then she won a write-in campaign. And her last name is not easy to spell. <laughs> it's Murkowski. But she was able, she has this very unique uh, political coalition in Alaska. Um, she does not need the party nor the party leadership to succeed. Look, it's our job, John, to talk about political strategies and messages and dissect them. But I think we can't lose sight of the fact that really mathematics Mathematics is uh, decisive in these things. And there's no way uh, with a margin that narrow that somebody like Mitch McConnell is going to want to uh, push people out of his party. I don't think you're going to see Democrats trying to impose a big price on Joe Manchin uh, for voting yes. Uh, mathematics is, is what matters, and it's really what's carried the day in this. And I also think that she and Susan Collins had different political calculations here. You know, you often see them voting together, but in this case, you had Alaska leaders coming out against Kavanaugh. Republicans. You had Native American groups, very influential in Alaska, coming out against him as well. So she may not have been as worried about the political price she would pay for voting no, whereas Susan Collins knew that it was going to be a very different situation in Maine. Speaking of making political calculations, John, I want to get your thoughts about, you talked about this, whose side are you on? There was a, we traveled some distance here between, uh, Senator John Cornyn came out and said, you know, the holes in Dr. Ford's testimony are um, uh, the kind of things that happen in a traumatic episode. It was a very sympathetic reading of what she did. Then a week later, President Trump is on the stump saying, basically making fun of the fact that she couldn't remember various things. Did, it present, did that moment have uh, some benefit, play some role in this when the president did what a lot of people thought at first was, oh my gosh, he's gone, he's not being restrained, he's, a, he's essentially making fun of this woman and that'll hurt him politically. Or did he know something smart about politics these days? You know, um, it all depends on whose ears are receiving a message. And what we were talking about here was the senator's ears. I really will say that I don't think many Republican senators were eager to hear that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, um, but mathematics was decisive. I think there were a lot of people in, in uh, sort of Trump's uh, base who were eager to hear that and uh, uh, and enjoyed it. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, and I think we don't really still know the political implications. Yeah. Clearly, in the uh, in, in red state uh, Senate races, uh, like North Dakota, this probably, uh, uh, or were Democrats actually defending a seat there, but uh, this uh, uh, Kavanaugh helps 
helps Republicans. I think we're going to probably see the exact opposite in a lot of these suburban uh, races on which the House of Representatives will hinge. Right. They've got different political lessons pointing different directions. Exactly. That's a great point. Sungman, what do you think of the long-term... Senator McConnell said this fired everybody up. Um, do people stay fired up for the next month? I think so. Well, I think they would because we saw the impact of the 1991 um, proceedings with now Justice Thomas and Anita Hill, and you saw the year of the woman come a year after those hearings happened. The midterms are only a month away, and I think you've seen that's... It will be a fascinating experiment to see how much this matters because the big test is only a few short weeks away. Uh, Mitch McConnell and... I mean, frankly, I've never seen Mitch McConnell so happy <laughs> than in the last couple of days because he truly believes, and he told me he had seen polling already that shows just how much, how unifying this, base, unifying this issue was for the Republican Party. Well, and, Nan, uh, just on the Democratic side, yeah. uh, is somebody, they've been hard to find after this law since we tried to reach out to a number of them. Is somebody going to be able to make use of this to, to get their own uh, voters? Yeah, even Democrats will acknowledge when you talk to them that they are already seeing out on the stump when they go home uh, for the weekends that the Republican base is more fired up than it was just a few weeks ago. So they acknowledge that this is a real thing. It's not just something that you're seeing in the polls. It's not a blip. They are encountering it. And the question for them is... Their base has been fired up for a long time now, so they have sustained this yes. level of energy. Is this Republican energy, is it a blip? And now that they got the Supreme Court justice they want, they go back to being content? Or is that, you know, energy that is going to last another month? One way in which it may last, John, is uh, related to something that, um, that, that Brett Stevens wrote about in the, in the New York Times. He's, he's been a vocal Trump critic. But he said in this case he was... He was happy to have the president in there, he said, because he was feeling grateful that in Trump, at least one big bully was willing to stand up to the others, the others in this case being those on the left. And so the idea is that if the left is behaving in this way, kind of, we need our bully, that that, do you think that's an argument that grows beyond this moment? There is a phenomenon in politics. In fact, I, I write a little bit about it on Politico today. Uh, both parties tend to believe when you talk with them privately, you know, we're more virtuous, uh, but the other side is more ruthless, yes. and they benefit by being more ruthless. And uh, a bunch of Democrats uh, believe that uh, today. Uh, um, Mitch McConnell is ruthless, but look, it worked for him by uh, sort of uh, bending uh, procedural rules with Merrick Garland and, again, with the FBI investigation into Kavanaugh. Uh, I tend to think that it's kind of a conceit of both parties, that if we could just be as vicious uh, as the other side um, um, uh, we'd prevail. I think in this instance, though, different to Sung Min's point uh, than 1991, we are now in a political culture uh, where a lot of people have trouble uh, remembering what they were indignant about uh, the week before last. <laughs> uh, remember in uh, 2016, we thought the uh, Access Hollywood tape was going to sink Donald Trump, but a month later, clearly was not the decisive factor in which people were voting. Sungman, I want to uh, back to McConnell for a moment. You could make a case that conservatives are very happy they got two people on the court. Um, clearly, Donald Trump uh, is re responsible for that. But Mitch McConnell may be a great deal more responsible in that he held up the uh, Merrick Garland's nomination, which got a lot of voters who were worried about Donald Trump to say, worried, yes, but if he can name the next court. So he did that, and he shepherded through two. This is a, this is a historic 
career-capping moment, those three things that McConnell has done. I mean, there, is, there are a few things policy-wise that Mitch McConnell cares more about than helping to reshape the federal judiciary. And we talk about how he held up Merrick Garland's nomination for, for a year. We also, what he subtly did, which didn't get a lot of attention in 2015 and 2016, is he actually blocked many of President Obama's circuit court nominees and district court nominees, which is why when President Trump was elected, he came in with this unusually historically high number of vacancies. So he, he has, you know, President Trump and Mitch McConnell have the two conservative justices installed on the court with uh, Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch. But he, they have already reshaped the, you know, the federal judiciary on so many different levels. And Mitch McConnell has said over and over that blocking Merrick Garland was one of the best decisions he's made. Nancy, the, uh, Mitch McConnell today said he's not going to question anybody's motives about the Kavanaugh vote. But, of course, Republicans were very successful, indeed, doing just that with the Democratic opponents. Mitch McConnell also talked about bipartisanship. Is he going to try to kind of make the Senate come back to its old ways, or is that... What do you make of, of that? Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of pessimism on both sides, that the, that the Senate can work, at least right now, the way that it used to. But the reality is there's almost nothing more momentous that senators do than decide on a justice who has the potential to change the balance of the Supreme Court. So this was always going to be a battle royale, almost no matter who it was, Brett Kavanaugh or Amy Coney Barrett or anyone else, this was going to be a huge clash from the very beginning. And John, last question to you. We've seen partisanship in the presidency and in the legislative. Where, where does it now stand with respect to the Supreme Court? Well, I was very interested in your exchange, uh, John, with uh, Mitch McConnell, who I think likes to think of himself uh, as an institutionalist. Uh, but in fact, that's not his legacy. He won, but he also owns the way he uh, won, uh, which means uh, the Senate is uh, polarized, the Supreme Court is polarized, and obviously the presidency's been polarized for a long time. And he knows that he owns part of that. That's why he was so uh, scratchy and defensive with you. <laughs> all right, we will end it on scratchy and defensive. Thank you to all of you for being here. And we'll be back in a moment. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. We'd like to go now to Seoul, South Korea, and CBS News correspondent Errol Barnett, who's covering Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's trip to the region. Errol? John, America's top diplomat received quite a warm welcome when he landed in Pyongyang today, which is in stark contrast to when he was effectively stood up by Chairman Kim Jong-un back in July. This time around, the American and North Korean delegations, led by Secretary Pompeo and Chairman Kim, met for two hours, followed by a formal lunch. The two sides are getting closer, we are told, to figuring out where and when President Trump will hold a second summit with Kim. 
The U.S. wants Pyongyang to irreversibly denuclearize in a way that can be verified, and it wants it done by 2021, the end of President Trump's first term. While North Korea wants U.N. sanctions lifted and the U.S. to declare an end to the Korean War, neither of which is likely in the short term. Pompeo is here in Seoul tonight to reassure South Korean Prime Minister Moon Jae-in talks are moving in the right direction. President Trump has said many steps along the way, uh, and we took one of them today with another step forward. So uh, this is, I think, a good outcome for all of us. Secretary Pompeo also tells President Moon that President Trump will meet Chairman Kim at the earliest possible date. Now, before he returns to Washington, Pompeo wraps up this tour through East Asia in Beijing. There, he will meet with President Xi Jinping and encourage him to fully enforce sanctions against North Korea, while also attempting to smooth over tensions stemming from the ongoing trade war with the U.S. Errol Barnett for us in Seoul, South Korea. Thanks, Errol. And we'll be back in a moment. And we're back with reporter and author Greg Miller. He covers national security for The Washington Post, and his latest book is The Apprentice. Trump, Russia, and the subversion of American democracy. Welcome. Thank you. Let's start with the recent news, which is of indictments against Russian hacking having to do with the Olympics. Yeah, this is really interesting. Uh, this is all, uh, these are indictments that we're just learning about now, but it's actually for activity that was happening around the same time as the election in large measure. I think that really this shows just that we're in a new era of aggressive espionage unlike anything we've ever been through. Uh, and that's what the book is largely about. And, you know, we face this great challenge at this moment from Russia, which is using espionage, using cyber operations to go at adversaries around the globe, including the United States. And here we are with a president who refuses to acknowledge any of that. What was, give us a sense of how uh, alive to this possibility of Russian intelligence hacking, the Obama administration was, and now it's obviously everybody knows about it. But yeah. were they were they slow on the uptake? They were slow in in one important way. I mean, I think that that at the time um, when this Russian, when the initial penetration of the DNC by Russian intelligence operatives, Russian hackers, was detected, it was treated as just another in a long, long line of. Uh, cyber penetrations by China, by Russia. They grab stuff, they look at the secrets, end of story, kind of. Nobody saw the second act here. Nobody saw the dumping of all this material, the weaponizing of this information by putting it out on WikiLeaks to hurt Hillary Clinton, to sow unrest in the United States, and later to help Donald Trump win. And this is one of the great things about your book is that it kind of connects what we thought were dis disparate events and yeah. puts them into a, 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 um, a kind of narrative, right? So yes. on that WikiLeaks point, so they thought it was just mischief-making, mm -hmm. but it was mischief-making which then was used, was turned into a weapon, was deployed in the middle of an election. Correct. So, right, so everybody expects Russia to engage in espionage. The United States does as well. To take the, what they get and then throw it out there for the world to see is really, really unusual. But we do see it now more and more. And this was uh, connects to the hacks that we learned about this week of anti-doping agencies. Those are designed to be overt acts, ultimately, to take to steal information, to try to discredit an adversary of the Kremlin. And so then a third thing, which you, which you will write about in the book, of course, this great question of whether uh, the information weaponized, was it weaponized with the help of anybody in the Trump orbit? Right. And I mean, there, obviously, we're waiting for Robert Mueller to give us the final answer to that question. And he's uh, kept that very close hold. But of course, 
what we did in this book, what I did in this book, is try to trace out all the connections, and there are many, many connections, right? So the Trump Tower connections, Manafort's longstanding connections with the Kremlin, uh, lots of interactions between Trump and his family, even well before the elections, with Russia, with seeking inter meetings with Vladimir Putin and so forth. What else in the book, when you think of the big pillars of this story, which you've had a chance to think about because you've taken a moment yeah. and stepped back from the crazy news cycle, what are the other big pillars for you? I mean, I just want to reiterate what you just said. I think that part of the value of this book, to me even, was putting it all together in one place because, you know, I was a reporter at The Post covering these stories as they were unfolding, the Mike Flynn story and so forth, and even I was just frequently lost, right? Getting lost in the daily deluge of information. So what I really tried to do with this book is put it together in a, in a clean narrative. And even then, I was seeing connections that, were, that I was blind to at the time. It's really astonishing. The administration has started talking about China a lot. Mike Pence spoke about the threat from China in a speech. Put that in context with respect to what the Russians have done. Uh, and what are the Chinese up to? So, yeah, it's really interesting that the administration is sort of going after China right now. Um, and China, of course, is aggressive in espionage and cyber espionage in particular and has been for many years. Um, the administration hasn't coughed up much evidence so far that they're interfering in a meaningful way in the upcoming election. I mean, China does put ads in newspapers and things like this, but uh, I think the contrast is what's striking, what they are saying about China and what they're not saying about Russia and you put those two things together, it's really, really hard to reconcile. And what they have not said about Russia at other points along the line in the of last course, two years. Of course, right. We've just never seen the president really call out Russia in any meaningful way for what happened. Let me ask you, since you cover national security, give me a sense of where President Trump, as a president who interacts with his national security officials, how does he do it relative to the way previous presidents have done? Uh, it's It's... Unlike anything any of us has seen in our lifetimes, I think, in terms of his disengagement from the national security apparatus, right? There, and even beyond that, it's a almost schizophrenic administration at times. And the, the book really goes into a lot of detail in this. It's not just about the election and the hacking. It is about Trump as president and how he's treated Russia, often in conflict with his own advisors, with his own cabinet. When you, what is the difference between John Bolton as the national security advisor and Henry McMaster? Uh, McMaster was really much more into process and trying to bring the president along through briefings and elaborate presentations and so forth and meetings and getting consensus. And Bolton sort of cuts through all that. I think he appeals to Trump in, in one way in that he sort of simplifies things for the president. It's a much smaller tighter held process and then he's working more closely with the president. Does that argue then that it's perhaps more efficient? It's more efficient, except that, you know, there are more people on the outside, more important people, more important voices, probably not getting heard the same way that they were getting heard across the administration under McMaster. Quickly, last, what's the thing on the uh, national security horizon we should be paying attention well, to? Well, of course, the Mueller probe yeah. wrapping up. I mean, I think that we're about to enter Act 3 of this crazy drama. All right, Greg Miller, thanks so much. The book is The Apprentice. There it is. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. That's it for us today. Thanks for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm John Dickerson. But I'll see you tomorrow and every day this week on CBS This Morning. I'm John Dickerson, and this has been Face the Nation. Today's guests were Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. 
For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS. Hey, it's Matt Norlander with the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast, and it is tournament time, people. So listen to the one podcast that will cover every upset, Cinderella, Bracket Buster Sleeper. We've got it all covered, every round, reaction shows, all the way up through the championship game in Glendale, Arizona. To find us, search Eye on College Basketball podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.